From the University of Notre Dame, I'm Andy Fuller, and these are Notre Dame Stories. In this episode, we meet a business student who is helping the NBA understand a new rule change, and one of the most iconic landmarks on campus gets an upgrade. Tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, first of all. Are you from the area? Are you from uh, uh, these parts? Yeah, sure. I grew up in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I did my undergraduate uh, there at a small liberal arts school called Rhodes College. It was like 1,700 students when I was there. Um, I was a political science major, but a minor in math um, because I just always enjoyed my math classes. Peter Zanka is a dual degree student pursuing an MBA and a Master's of Science in Business Analytics in the Mendoza College of Business. He's worked with numbers and data most of his post-undergrad life at places like Accenture in Washington, D.C., and here at Notre Dame's Athletics Department. This summer, he competed in the National Basketball Association's Hackathon, using data to answer a question of importance to the game. And he won. You always been a basketball fan? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, people people ask me, you know, when I say I'm interested in working in sports analytics, they say, "Oh, well, what, what, you know, would you be interested in uh, football or baseball?" And I'm like, I'm "Pretty, I'm pretty much a basketball guy. Okay. I am very much a casual fan of of pretty much every sport except basketball, where I'm 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 all in okay. on basketball. Yeah. Very good. Well, you come to the right state then, yeah, uh, as well. Okay." Good. Okay, so the NBA Hackathon. Uh, first of all, kind of a, a funny name given the context. I think I've watched a few games that, that could be <laughs> could be considered a, a hackathon. I um, Describe what is it uh, and, and maybe how you got involved. Yeah, sure. The So I think the NBA has been doing the hackathon for either four or five years now, and it's taken a couple of different forms. Um, but, you know, a hackathon in general um, – you know, can can take a lot of different shapes. You know, sometimes it's um, you know, developers trying to put together a, a new app in a in a short period of time, um, or you know, the, as as the name suggests, literally trying to hack into a you know hack into a system and test like a system's you know security mm. parameters or something like that. Um, the NBA's approach to it, you know, what really what they mean by hackathon is it's a, a team based competition. Um, surrounding uh surrounding data so in its simplest form basically the data pro or the nba provides uh provides teams with a bunch of proprietary data and then either has has that team come up with a question to research and solve or or in some cases in the past has provided a question for them to uh to research and, and solve um, so I got involved with it this summer, just someone that I follow on Twitter posted about it and said that they had opened up applications. It was something that I, I think I remember seeing last year and having thought like, man, I really wish I had, I had, uh, thrown my hat in on that. Um, and, uh, so I partnered up with a guy that I had interned with, um, over the summer. I didn't, did an internship with, uh, the Indiana Pacers mm. doing basketball analytics for them. Um, and so I partnered up with a guy that I interned with there and, um, basically we were asked to submit a research abstract to the NBA, um, coming up with, you know, basically posing a question that we think, 
we could use data to, to answer. Um, and I, all credit goes to my, my partner. He's a, a, a recent graduate of Syracuse, a guy named uh, C.B. Garrett. Um, you know, we'd all noticed over the summer that the NBA had introduced this new coaches challenge, um, similar to, to the NFL or tennis or, or uh, Major League Baseball. Um, and since it was new to the NBA, we thought, okay, there, there may be some sort of data-driven case to be found there. So we submitted a, a research abstract saying, hey, we think we can find the optimal, uh, optimal use cases for when you should use your challenge. Um, we had no idea how we were going to do it, but we <laughs> thought, we, but we thought, hey, we, you know, we, we can probably figure it out. Okay. So the NBA Coaches Challenge, as I understand it, there's, there's kind of four things that you can challenge now this mm-hmm. year. There's whether there was a foul on, on one of your players, mm-hmm. um, goaltending, mm-hmm. basket interference, and then out of bounds. Yeah. Right. So now you kind of looked at each of those use cases, yeah. right? And, and what did you, what was the central question that you were trying to find out here? Yeah, yeah, you, you hit you hit it perfectly. Those are the four things that you can challenge, and um, the other kind of wrinkle to it that that um, I think makes it an even more important question is that um, your team only gets one of these challenges per game, and it doesn't matter whether you get it right or wrong. It's you use it and you lose it. So it, it's a pretty valuable um, asset to have, and so we wanted to to find those cases. So yeah, we looked, um, basically came up with every kind of every permutation that we could think of, of, you know, how one of those four scenarios could occur in a game, Mm -hmm. you know, goaltending and and basket interference are pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, But for instance, for out of bounds, um, you know, are you challenging the call because you're trying to maintain possession? You're not, you know, you you think it it was out of bounds on the other team and you're trying to keep the possession for yourself. Um, Or is it that you're trying to take possession away from the other team? Fouls, it got really complicated because, okay, is it a shooting foul? Is it on the floor? Is it an offensive foul? Um, Is it an and one? Mm -hmm. So we tried to lay all those scenarios out. And then um, I would say there were kind of two pieces to to what we put together. One was determining uh, essentially how often the referees get those calls right, get the close calls right. and the way we did that is uh, we collected data from um, what the NBA calls the last two-minute report. Mm-hmm. And going back to 2015, um, any time that a game is within six points in the last two minutes, and I think it's for all playoff games or all close playoff games, um, the NBA goes back and does a, uh, a thorough analysis of every call and non-call in the last two minutes of the game. Mm-hmm. And so basically we were able to uh, come up with essentially an accuracy rate on each of those different types of calls to see how often refs get it right. And, and you know, basically refs get fouls right most of the time. Um, goaltending and offensive basket interference, it's kind of a coin flip. Mm. Um, and out of bounds, I, I forget the exact number, but it was like three quarters of the time they get it right. Okay. Um, NBA, NBA referees are really good, mm. by the way. They're really good at what they do. Um uh, so, you know, that, that was one of the things that, that kind of surprised us was just how accurate they are. Hmm. But, um, but yeah, so we, we've determined how often do they get these things right or wrong? And then, um, the other thing that we determined was, um, so if you were to challenge one of these calls, so let's offensive basket interference is the easiest one to talk about. Um, so if you were to successfully challenge it, 
basically what's the swing in points um, for offensive basket interference is if you successfully challenge it, they called offensive basket interference, but you, you get them to uh, change that call, you get two points. Um, so the difference in, mm-hmm. you know, the, sort of the, the points gained on a, that successful challenge, it's two points. Um, so we did that for like sort of every, every permutation. So we use, um, efficiency ratings for teams in different scenarios and free throw percentages. So we, you know, kind of pulled all these numbers together to come up with that. And then we, so we took the accuracy rate and that points gained number and we multiplied them by each other to come up with expected points gained. So if you were to challenge such a call, this is how many points you should expect to get on average. Hmm. So that that basically is saying, you know, given all the times you're going to get it right and all the times you're going to get it wrong, this is this is basically what you should expect to get, you know, out, you know, across not 9 times out of 10, but across your 10 times, this is what you should expect to get. You know, as for the sort of different nuances of, of different calls. One of the things that we looked at was, well, how much time is um, left on the shot clock? Uh, if, if, it's, if the shot, clock's not, shot clock is not going to reset um, and there are six seconds or less left on the shot clock, that's very different than if there's 16 seconds or more left on the shot clock. That you're, you know, you're, you're trying to save a... Mm-hmm. a save a possession that's not worth saving Mm. so we basically said like those are situations where you want to keep keep hold of that challenge and maybe wait to see what um uh what other opportunities might come up that that was another thing that we we didn't quite get to with with this analysis but um would want to revisit is sort of over the course of the game as you move from the first quarter to the second and on towards the end of the game um how the value of the of the challenge changes and you know one of one of the folks from the nba asked us so if if there's an offensive basket interference call um in one minute into the first quarter do you challenge that or do you hang on to it thinking maybe there's something more valuable that might come up come up along the way you know, my partner and i we we took the line of no challenge it because that that sort of thing rarely happens you you want to go for it hmm. um points you know points it you know points one minute into the game are are just as valuable as points in the last couple minutes of the game um that being said that you know the the counter argument to that is that points early in the game are easier to get than points at the end of the game yeah and easier to to make up if you're on the uh wrong side of it exactly right yeah We'll have more after the break. With a Side of Knowledge is a podcast from Notre Dame that embodies a simple guiding principle. Everything's better with brunch. Our show features informal conversations between host Ted Fox, that's me, and all manner of scholars, makers, and professionals from both the university and elsewhere. We record each episode over a meal or coffee, ambient noise and all. You can find with a side of knowledge at provost.nd.edu slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, are you able to share with us kind of, okay, big picture, how valuable will these challenges be this season or is that kind of proprietary to the NBA? Um, no, I th- I mean, we, we had some really great conversations um, with, with people from, from the NBA who took, 
took an interest in in our study because they're just as curious as we are to see mm-hmm. how this thing goes. So, I mean, it's important to note that the that the challenge system is it's a one year pilot for the NBA. Um, they've been doing it in the uh, in the G League, their their minor league for. I think three or four seasons now. So, you know, they have a lot of data on that and I'm sure they have a pretty good sense of, of how, how the challenge has been used, but, um, and, and what impact it's had on the game. Right. What is the, what is the number? What is the expected points gained? Uh, are you able to share that with us? Yeah. Yeah. So for, um, it's when you, you know, keep in mind, we're talking about, you know, averages here. Right, right. So like the, for uh for the offensive basket interference for instance that that one's like the number number one out distances the other uh rest of the others so so again going back to those numbers i was talking about earlier it's two points on the board the referees get it right about half the time um so it really kind of works out to be about point it's like 0.91 point expected points okay for for on an on a successful challenge so and you hear that you say 0.9 points that's not even a point like how could that how can it really be um that valuable well i mean the the two i mean the, the main thing at play there is that the referees just don't get these things wrong very often right and so anytime that you're going to challenge a call the you know expected change in the score just isn't that much so so offensive basket interference you know every time you challenge that you should expect to get just shy of a point um, and then as you move down to the next sort of tier of things, I think for goaltending, it's like 0.6 points. And then for uh, some of the more high high value uh, foul and out of bounds situations, it's like 0.4 points mm, okay. um, on a, on a challenge. So again, like it's not, a, it's not a huge number, but you know, when you start to think about um, you start to think about the number of games that are close coming down a stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're able to really, zone in on those ones that you really think you can get overturned it could potentially you know swing a game um that i think that's the thing i'm most interested to look at and and see you know how many how many games in which there's a challenge successfully uh, executed um does that difference in the points actually pan out to be the difference in the game yeah um, so part of the prize package was tickets to an NBA game. Have you decided which one you're going to yet? Yeah, I, I haven't decided which one exactly. Um, I, I think I'm going to, uh, probably make the drive up to, uh, Milwaukee, see the, to see the Bucks. I mean, um, Giannis is a, is quite the spectacle to watch. Mm-hmm. Plus Pat Connaughton's up there. Yeah, there you um, go. and he's always fun, always fun to watch. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out which which game exactly I'm going to go to, but I think that's that's the one that I'm going to target. Let me ask you this: What um, you mentioned, Moneyball? What do numbers add to sports? Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of people out there um, who maybe feel threatened by analytics in sports, see it as something foreign or something that doesn't belong, and there are probably practitioners on the analytics side who have who have uh, sort of earned that, um, in, in trying to be, um, you know, trying to make things difficult to, to access or understand. Um, but really I think when analytics are done right, um, it really just provides more information. It's not meant to, to supplant or replace anything. It's not meant to replace traditional scouting. Um, and certainly not meant to replace any sort of, uh, effort or metal or anything like that. Um, it's, it's really just to provide more information 
And, you know, I think in the best cases, it's their confirming, um, confirming biases or helping to explain, you know, why certain biases might exist or, or be, you know, or be misinformed. Gotcha. Okay. Last question I'll ask you as, um, kind of a numbers guy and as a basketball guy, what do you think the odds are for, uh, my Portland trailblazers, uh, to, to win it all this year? (laughs) That's a good question. That's a good question. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if the Blazers can can replicate. I mean, they, they got so hot there <laughs> last year. Um, I like that team a lot. Um, getting Yurkic back is going to be uh, really, you know, really helpful. Um, I think they could be a top four seed. Okay. I don't know. I don't know that they can come out, though. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So Blazers are the field. You're definitely saying the field there, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Peter Zenka, thank you very much. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Andy. Before we get to the second part of the show, I want to give you an update on the project you've heard me talk about throughout this season. The trailer for Tantur Hill in the Holy Land is now available. You can hear it by going to stories.nd.edu. That's stories.nd.edu. We'll be dropping the entire docu-series in the coming days. Follow at Indie Stories on Twitter or the university's main accounts to be the first to know when it's available. Thanks for listening. It's the spiritual center of Notre Dame's campus. And coming here just about any time of the day, on any day of the week, you can see why. The Grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes is a place of prayer and reflection. The candles have flickered light off the back of the cave walls since before World War I, their illumination a reminder of the prayers that have been offered here. Sacred places, even outdoor sacred places, need upkeep as well. Sometimes you come here and you think it just always looks this way. You sometimes forget that something so well-maintained requires maintenance to fulfill the descriptor. Over the summer, the university did just that, replacing the pavers and stair rail around the grotto. And while they were at it, they took the chance to upgrade a piece of art that is often overlooked here. So the project for the grotto fountain, the drinking fountain, started by the grotto being refurnished, refloored. New stairs were added on the left side. And as a part of that project, uh, the fountain that, is, uh, that was installed in 1943 uh, had to be replaced since it was made in terrazzo concrete. Over the time, it's, it's uh, quality and surface, and as well as the static kind of uh, uh, became poorer and poorer, and uh, the university decided it's time to replace it, not with another uh, uh, fountain, but as the same fountain, just out of different material. When they made that decision, that is the university, uh, made that decision, they decided to make it out of bronze. 
Miklos Simon is a sculptor here, and he was commissioned to make a new fountain. We joined him for the process in the basement of Riley Hall, and lest you thought otherwise, let me assure you, the refurbishing of this particular fountain was not easy. First there was disassembly, a breaking apart of the three sides of the fountain, which each have sculptures engraved into them. Then there was work with plaster, and then mold, and then ceramics. Then Miklos filled it up with bronze, and we got to watch as he welded it all together. With proper eye protection, of course. The way I approach work like this, uh, compared to my original artwork, I have an enormous respect for artists before me. That said, I try to understand their mindset, their hand craftsmanship, and be honoring their history, trying to be faithful to that all. And I take a pride in it. I know a lot of, uh, I know that's a long, funny thing to say. I learned a lot of things over the years. I obviously, when I started to be a sculptor, when I was 14 years old, I didn't know anything. Over the years, I accumulated a, a lot of knowledge, and that's through other artists who some of us are not with us anymore. And that gave me a lot of uh, respect because of my knowledge. And I'm also a teacher, so all that I am trying to pass on for next generations of artists. I think uh, any uh, successful educational institution and especially with a history like Notre Dame, I think we cannot forget about aesthetic. And if we look at even just the early buildings, then we look at the buildings of the 70s and what we return to this classical uh, style, I think we have to honor the classical sculptures too, and we do. Uh, if we go to the chapels of each new dormitories, we have wonderful sculptures in there. Fortunately, I was lucky, even as was first year graduate student, I created two altarpieces. And uh, I heard uh, when I was starting to work on this fountain that there are students who go to this chapel and, and they come back after graduation just to see the altarpiece. There's a confluence of beauty, history, and spirituality on Notre Dame's campus that Miklos understands quite well. Each element lends something to the other, and maybe they all gain a certain vitality by people coming here for the experience over and over again. It means them so much. So I think, uh, like the fountain, it's, it, it's been there since 43. Once we replace it with the new version, it, it is uh, going to last for much, much more decades than the, the stone would have. And it, it brings back the imagery, which is wonderful on this fountain. One is the by the well, the water, and Christ washing the feet. So even it, it brings back our, our relation to the water, I guess our religion, our humanity. So that's, I, I think that, that art does that, and we need it.
Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Editing help provided by Olivia Rotolo. Our music is by Alex Mansour. Thank you.